Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Dr. John D'Amelio is author of the book Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of a Bayard Rustin. Dr. Amelio, good to have you on this program. How are you today, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's my great delight to have you. I did not want this day to uh, go by, at least uh, without having a conversation on this program, about one Bayard Rustin. We talk all the time about the March on Washington. Today, of course, the 60th anniversary of that historic gathering. Um, but uh, I think over time, it's fair to say that more and more people are starting to hear about and learn about Bayard Rustin, but we really don't have a grasp of his contribution in the way that we ought. But I guess my first question is whether or not you agree that over time he is starting to get a little bit more recognition. He is getting more recognition. Uh, the 50th anniversary of the march and uh, the 100th anniversary of his birth in 2012 uh, put him more in the uh, public spotlight. And then receiving po- posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama also put him out there. So, for those who don't know the name even still, who was Bayard Rustin? Rustin was probably one of the most important social justice activists of the mid-20th century. Uh, In relationship to the March on Washington, his significance is that he was the primary organizer of it. Uh, He coordinated all of the activities that, in eight weeks' time, got 250,000 people to the nation's capital, something that had never happened before. But also, even before that, uh, he, for more than two decades, he had been involved in the racial justice movement, into the international anti-nuclear movement, in the movement against European colonization in Africa. He was an activist on so many different levels. And another really significant part of Rustin's legacy is that he is the person, more than anyone else, who enlightened Dr. King about the power of Gandhian nonviolence as the way to move protest movements forward. Uh, Dr. King was amenable to it, but he hadn't, he wasn't devoted to it until Rustin went to Montgomery in 1956 during the boycott and basically served as Dr. King's teacher and tutor about the philosophy of Gandhian nonviolence. Mm. Tell me a bit more about uh, Bayard Rustin's backstory, about his birth, about his upbringing. Give me, give me, give me some of the Bayard Rustin backstory. He grew up, he was born in 1912 uh, in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, His mother was a young, unmarried woman, uh, and uh, and Bayard was basically raised by his grandparents, who, and his grandmother just devoted herself uh, to Bayard's upbringing. Uh, In Westchester, Pennsylvania, even though it was, quote, Quaker country Mm -hmm. uh, in the early 20th century, 20th century was still partly segregated, uh, so that Bayard went to an all-black elementary school. Uh, theaters had separate sections for African Americans and whites. Um, in high school, he went to an integrated high school, and he excelled both as an athlete and as a public speaker, uh, and most significantly, perhaps, as a singer. He had a wonderful singing voice that... Um, he used throughout his career as an activist, actually. Um, 
in the 1930s, he, uh, as a young man, he moved uh, to New York City because he wanted to be in a larger uh, black community. And also by that point, he was struggling with the fact that he was sexually attracted to men, that he was what we would call gay. Uh, and he thought that there would be more freedom to explore that in a community like Harlem in the 1930s than in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Yes. Uh, he, that was the era of the Depression, so there was lots of uh, protest going on, and especially left-wing protest, and he had a short uh, tie with the Communist Party. But he left that end made the decision to be a lifelong activist at the beginning of the 1940s. There's a lot there, and I'm glad we've got a few minutes here to unpack some of that. Let me start with this. Um, the segregation notwithstanding in Westchester, Pennsylvania, in that Quaker country, how did his growing up in Quaker country impact or influence him politically, socially, culturally? Uh, what, what, what impact did that have on him? Well, his grandmother in, in that small town was, even in that era, was something of an activist. She was a very early member of the NAACP uh, and helped create a small chapter there. So he was learning activism within the family. Uh, but also, uh, even though he didn't grow up as a Quaker, in that Quaker environment, he internalized some of the values of uh, Quakerism, uh, the respect for all other people. And after he moved to New York uh, in his mid-20s, uh, he joined uh, a Quaker meeting in New York City that he remained a member of for the next 50 years of his life. So mm -hmm. he brought that part of Westchester, Pennsylvania and Quaker country with him. Um, and it remained a part of who he was. Um, did that impact influence him politically? Uh, yes, uh, because uh, within Quakerism, there is a strong uh, commitment towards social justice and go. equality. Yeah. And so from there, uh, e even though it, you know, it doesn't define itself as left or right or mm -hmm. any of those other things, but uh, it believes in social justice and that all human beings should be treated uh, with respect and fairness. That's what I was driving toward. I'm glad we, glad we got there. Um, his flirtation with communism. Uh, tell me a bit more about that, please. Well, in the 1930s, uh, during the Great Depression, uh, there was lots of, as you can imagine, working class and poor people's protests. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about the Communist Party in the 1930s, it was that it was one of the few radical organizations organizing protests that also took stands around racial justice. And so for Rustin, it put together two aspects of of the world. One, his racial identity, and two, uh, the class conflict that was going on in uh, the United States during those horrible years of economic depression. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, of course, uh, his being gay, and uh, it's, it's much easier to have this conversation in 2023 for those persons who happen to be gay because America is much more open about that concept. Uh, whether, one's, whether one agrees or disagrees, uh, the concept, uh, the conversation is much more out in the, in the open than it was back then. Certainly as a black man, uh, 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 Baird Rustin was in a situation where he had to or certainly felt that he needed to hide uh, for a time um, 
his sexual orientation. Um, talk to me about how he navigated that space in the 50s, in the 60s. How does he navigate that space as a gay black man? Well, you know, I mean, the 1950s and 1960s could very easily be described as the worst time to be queer in the United States. Mm -hmm. Oppression was everywhere. It was criminalized. Religious communities saw it as sinful. It was seen as a mental illness. Uh, police were on the attack, uh, arresting gay men almost whenever they had any opportunity. Um, so to be gay... Uh, one had to be very careful, and one also faced danger all the time if you decided to pursue uh, your inclinations. And the thing that can be said about Bayard is that although, in the terms we use today, he was not out of the closet in the sense that he was announcing to the world that I am a gay man, he also didn't pretend the way many gay men did, to be heterosexual. So that when he had a boyfriend or a partner, he brought that person with him to social events or uh, organizational activities and just said, hi, this is mm -hmm. Davis, you know. Um, and that was very unusual at the time. Um, the other thing to be said, though, is that, again, as a gay man, he faced lots of danger. And a number of times in the 40s and early 50s, he was arrested by the police. Um, and the worst of those moments came in 1953 when he was on a speaking tour uh, uh, for the peace movement and against African colonization. He was arrested in Pasadena by the police for having sex with another man. Uh, and there was a conviction, and he served a short time in prison for disorderly conduct, and that haunted him for years afterwards. How did I, I've always wanted to ask this question of a scholar like yourself, given that you've written this book about uh, uh, Bayard Rustin, Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. Um, for, a, for, for a man who is black and, and gay, who is interfacing with that many preachers, Dr. King is just one of them, but there are so many preachers, of course, who are leading the movement. I mean, I'm, I'm talking King. I, I mean, don't, I, I won't even get started running the list of all sure. of those, all the black clergy whose names we know. Uh, well, I'll throw a few out there. We know Y.T. Walker. We know Fred Shuttlesworth. I mean, I mean, the list goes on. And Joseph, Joseph Lowry and, and, and Ralph Abernathy. I mean, all these ministers were at the forefront of leading this civil rights movement along with Dr. King. How did Bayard get along with them? Yes. Well, let me answer that in two ways, okay. two parts. The first part is that, uh, surprisingly, it's been discovered by historians who are doing the research that many black religious communities, congregations, were quite welcoming to gay men, uh, who often played a key part in their choruses, for instance, as long as one didn't flaunt it or talk about it. But everybody knew that these five guys are gay, and that's just who they are. Mm -hmm. Now, part two, though, is in the context of the movement, and especially in the context of the South, um, many of the ministers who were close allies and co-workers of Dr. King were very worried that too much presence by Bayard Rustin would discredit the movement and be used uh, to 
block it, mm-hmm. to, you know, create bad news coverage and the like. Sure. And so one of the things that happened is that after those first few months of Bayard working very closely with Dr. King in Montgomery, what ended up happening over the next period of time is that he worked with Dr. King, you might say, one step or two steps removed. So he did not have, even though the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was, he was one of the key creators of that concept, he never had a formal role in it. He was a distant advisor to Dr. King. Two things I find fascinating. I've got about five minutes left. I want to cover a bit more ground here. I could do this for hours if I had the time today. We've got a, an 80-pound show we're trying to squeeze into a 40-pound bag <laughs> as we celebrate 60 years since the March on Washington. But two things right quick. One, uh, I'm sure you were laughing when, when Dr. John uh, D'Amelio said uh, uh, the, the chorus. Uh, we call that the Black Church Choir. We just call it the choir. Uh, y'all know exactly what he meant when he said chorus. Okay. The, and, 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 and we all know, we all know. Uh, that the black church has had uh, had a, an interesting relationship with those persons who we all know were gay, but nobody wanted to out them, uh, but because they sang so well, to play the organ so well, and let the church say, "Man, yeah, I heard you, Amen." Let me move on. The other thing I found fascinating is you got you got J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI. Uh, spying on Dr. King, spying on Biden and others. He's walking around wearing pink panties in in, in, in his office, <laughs> doing his own thing. We now know. We now know he has his own issues with his own sexuality, and yet uh, they are concerned inside the movement that if Hoover finds out about Byard and outs him, they would have trouble. I'll leave that alone. Let me move uh, to ask this question, Dr. John D'Amelio, and that is to tell me more about, uh, about uh, Byard's role specifically in organizing the March on Washington. Well, he was the key organizer. Um, you know, he and A. Philip Randolph uh, of the Pullman Porters Union uh, were the ones who had the idea for a march on Washington. And, and they started pushing it in early 63. But, um, and eventually, after Birmingham brought protest so much on the front page of everything, uh, Organizations agreed, let's do the March on Washington, but they didn't want Rustin as leader because of his arrest Mm -hmm. and therefore reputation. So A. Philip Randolph said, well, I will be the director of the March on Washington, but I need to appoint my own assistant. Mm -hmm. And he appointed Rustin as the assistant, and that actually was the role of key organizer. And when you think about the Times, 1963, uh, no Internet, no web, no social media, mm-hmm. no texting on cell phones. <laughs> In eight weeks' time, he organized a staff and created cooperation between organizations such that 250,000 people mm. came to Washington, D.C., and nothing like that had happened before. How, how, and, how, how, how do you do that? How do you do it? Uh, by <laughs> working around the clock with a staff of people, younger people particularly, who adored him for his ability to teach them how to uh, work efficiently and give them direction. And it was a very loyal team. And it pulled in members of all of the organizations who were supporting the March on Washington. And it's it's truly amazing, especially in 2023, to imagine that they did that in eight weeks' time. 
I'll, uh, I'll offer this as the exit question, and I could spend, again, hours talking about Bayard Rustin. Our guest is Dr. John D'Amelio. His book is called Lost Profit, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. I highly recommend it. Uh, you need to learn more about who Bayard Rustin was to really appreciate the March on Washington 60 years ago. If there is no Bayard Rustin, there is no March on Washington for us to talk about six decades later. What is his enduring legacy, Dr. Emilio? Uh, his legacy is the fact that you can make a difference if you decide to organize. Uh, he never gave up his belief in organizing for both racial and class justice and equality. And uh, it's, it's a model, you know, for just an ordinary kid from a small town became a leader of international significance. Mm. Dr. John D. Emilio is a professor emeritus of history and of women's and gender studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His text about Bayard Rustin is called Lost Prophet, the Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. As I said moments ago, if there is no Bayard Rustin, no A. Philip Randolph, there is no March on Washington, there is no I Have a Dream speech, and the course of history changes. Uh, and the uh, the iconic legislation that came out of that march, as we know it, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and uh, Housing Discrimination uh, Act in 68, uh, that does not happen, perhaps, uh, if this march does not galvanize the country, and it wouldn't have happened without one Bayard Rustin. And so we wanted to start our program today uh, doing justice and honor uh, to the memory and the life and legacy of one Bayard Rustin. Dr. John D'Amelio, thank you for your time, for the text. I appreciate you greatly, sir. All the best to you. Thank you.